welcome to Talkumentaries, where we'll discuss a different documentary each week. This week we're discussing Casting John Bonnet, the 2017 documentary film about the death of John Bonnet Ramsey and the large impact it left behind. The film was directed by Kitty Green. It's currently streaming on Netflix. This podcast will contain spoilers, so listen at your own risk. Hey! Hello! So this was an odd one. I have been trying to figure out how to describe the format of this. It's very strange. I don't think it's ever been done before. How would you describe it? Yeah, it is interesting. And as somebody who's kind of an armchair sociologist, I found it very interesting because it lures you in with the mention of Jean Bonnet. So you think it's going to be true crime. But it's really more mm-hmm. of a study of human behavior, in my opinion, where the documentary itself, you know, it has elements of fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea is that it's a casting process for a film that was never actually filmed. And the director, Kitty Green, had apparently used this in a short documentary before that she made about the Ukrainian conflict. And I wasn't able to find that online, but she called that one The Face of Ukraine Casting Oksana Bayul, where she tried to bring in young girls and cast them as the figure skater. And they ended up telling their stories about the Ukrainian conflict. So what I also found interesting about this is Kitty Green is Australian. So I think that speaks to kind of the worldwide fascination of John Bonet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just an American thing. But she basically put out a casting call, I guess, for the Boulder area. So 20 years have gone by since this crime. But in my opinion, I feel like the documentary was more about this game of telephone, really, that, that yeah. we play when it comes to famous crimes or even just famous stories. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting to see how these actors and actresses who were interested in playing the key, I guess, players in the crime, how they related to the story and related yeah. to the, the characters and the different ideas they had themselves. Either they had heard from other sources or word of mouth about the crime itself it was interesting to hear that whole evolution mm-hmm. and, and see that on film. So I felt like it was more of a character study of of those of us who follow true crime mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. how a case will evolve over time, especially one that is unsolved because you don't have mm-hmm. definitive proof. Rather than a documentary about Jean Benet, which there have been a ton of those already. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Yeah. I found it really interesting. Oh, what did you think? I thought it was really interesting, too. And I didn't realize at first that the um, casting was going to be taking place in Boulder. I just assumed that it would be, you know, where are you going to find a whole bunch of actors to line up to play? I just assumed it would happen in California. Oh, yeah. Um, And then as they started talking to the people who who were auditioning to play these roles, you realized you were talking to people who remembered the media circus as it happened, knew of that neighborhood, knew the kind of, you know, just had more than a passing interest in the Jean Bonnet case that a lot of us have. Yeah. And really, it could have been done in California. And obviously, as you say, Australia, where the, where the director is from, 
that that story has just really captured people's attention and held it for so long just because it's unsolved and it's so it's so strange there's just right. so many strange elements to it and to me the two most memorable parts of the film were the very beginning and the very end mm-hmm. uh, because in the very beginning the first thing you see is uh, one of the little girls who is auditioning to play Jean Bonnet and she's this cute little blonde perky first grader type, you know, right. who looks very much like you imagine Jean Bonnet would have looked, you know, all gussied up in her sequined pageant outfit. And right. um, she's just kind of clambered up onto a stool and is sitting in front of the camera playing with the little, what's that little black and white thing they clap together when it's time oh. to start the scene. Yeah, I don't know what she that's called. She just has this <laughs> playful innocence about her. And so that was really poignant to see that's exactly the age and the presence that I imagine John Bonet had at the time of her death. And then at the very end, after you've talked to all these people who have their own ideas of what happened and what motivated the parents to behave the way they did and all of that, you see the the last shot of the movie or among the last shots anyway, is just this sort of it pans across this set of a house mm-hmm. where you see these various scenarios all happening kind of simultaneously, all the different explanations for it. Right. Jean Benet's mother getting angry at her and, you know, getting out of hand. Jean Benet's brother getting into a fight with her and losing control of himself. An intruder coming in and dragging her down the hall. It's mm-hmm. all these different scenarios that could have played out and that have, you know, been put forth as theories all happening simultaneously. And that was right. kind of chilling to see because you really don't know what it was. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that closing scene was really creepy, you know, because they Mm -hmm. all the different Patsies and all the different Burks and all of the different players there on one set giving their interpretation, which, of course, each one was different. And Mm -hmm. they were all dressed in the red top that Patsy was known for, you know, and (laughs) I just Mm -hmm. thought that was a really creepy scene. And of course, it was followed by that closing scene of Jean Benet dancing under a spotlight to There She Is Miss America, and she was all dolled up. That's the combination right. was so creepy. I thought it was effective, though. I, it gave me a lot to think about. You know, it kind of gives people like us who follow true crime a chance to turn the mirror on ourselves. We've talked about Jean Bonnet and heard about Jean Bonnet for 20 years, and it's a shame that she's kind of ceased to be a former living mm-hmm. human at this point. She's become more of a celebrity she and her family mm-hmm. have all become more of celebrities. And I think the fact that she was a young child who got killed has gotten lost in a lot of that. Seeing the people talk about the crime made me reflect more about how I think about true crime and victims of crimes. Yeah. So I thought it was an interesting study of human behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole thing is really so troubling. I mean, just because, as you say, we easily forget that she was just a six-year-old girl. Because so many of the photos around that case when it first broke and ever since have been pictures of her all dolled up in a glamour shot, you know, with the feather boa and the sequins and the whole nine. She was involved in this world that just made a six-year-old girl look very different from how you and I looked at six years old. And so she had all the pictures you saw of her most of the pictures you saw of her anyway didn't really depict her as a six-year-old girl playing with her Barbies or, right. you know, irritating her brother or any of the regular standard stuff. It was her 
as a celebrity in life. And so, you know, in death, those are the pictures that persisted. Right. And I was kind of at the beginning of it, there were a lot of the people that they spoke to, a lot of the actors who were signed up to audition for the roles of Jean Benet's parents. There seemed to be at the beginning a lot of anger toward her mother specifically. Mm-hmm. And that was surprising to me because in my, you know, I haven't really dived especially deep, especially, you know, into the whole Jean Benet story. Mm-hmm. But my understanding of it is that there's been a lot of suspicion around her mother for helping to cover something up, but not so much around her mother for doing it, for killing her. Yeah. And these people seem to immediately launch right into Patsy (laughs) as the one who did her in. That was surprising to me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, in Boulder, you know, Boulder's what, you know, always touted as the healthiest city in the U.S. And the Ramses had moved from Atlanta and they weren't Mm -hmm. native Boulder residents. And Mm -hmm. the whole idea of the beauty pageants and the culture around that is, is more of a Southern thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, more of a, an Atlanta thing. So I, I wondered if she was always kind of seen as an outcast and not really embraced by the locals, who all these actors mm-hmm. and actresses were. The Ramses were cleared through DNA evidence. And I think that gets lost, especially when I don't know if you watched any of the recent documentaries about John Bonet that came out late last year on the 20th anniversary. I did not know, but they were all over the place. I only watched one, which was the CBS one, which Mm -hmm. (laughs) they pretty much went through different scenarios and came to the conclusion that Burke was the culprit Uh, and the parents covered it up. Uh, And they presented the one I've only heard bits and pieces of it discussed in podcasts, but is Uh this the one where they had a boy of about his age beating a. Yes. A fake head or a, something oh my with a gosh. flashlight. Yes. And it was a skull. They covered it with, I think, pig skin and a blonde wig and put it at the height John Bonet would have been and brought in a 10 year old boy and gave him a heavy flashlight and asked him to whack the head. And, mm-hmm. well, first of all, I mean, how messed up is that young kid going to be now after yeah. doing that? Yeah. So, yeah, they kind of did that little experiment first. But then, of course, this film took it a step further and used watermelon and several kids who were, I guess, auditioning for Burke. But I I don't know. That's very exploitative. (laughs) I don't know. Just especially the poor guy who ate a piece of watermelon after he crushed it with the flashlight. (laughs) I mean, was that thrown in for comedic effect? What was? I don't know. He was. I mean, yeah. Did those kids know that that's what they were supposed to be? You know, reenacting with the flashlight and the melon, or where they just said, "Here, break some stuff." You know, which any ten-year-old boy is going to be like, "Sure." I hope with the viciousness. I know, right? I hope with the viciousness that they showed, like the determination that they showed doing that, that they weren't told this represents a young girl's head. (laughs) I don't know. These poor kids, too. I wonder they're going to want to watch themselves on film at some point. And then they're going to be like, oh, my God, how messed up is that? Me pretending to crack her head open. (laughs) And there I picked up a piece of the melon and ate it. I know. So there again, I mean, Burke was, it was alluded to him potentially being the killer because that is one of the theories out there, but the entire Ramsey family was cleared on DNA evidence. 
and mm-hmm. you know the Boulder police and DA I guess officially apologized several years ago and mm-hmm. there are so many theories at this point but that's continued to haunt them you know and yeah. after that CBS documentary Burke did file a lawsuit against CBS and yeah what's become of that I remember seeing the headline that he did but yeah the last that I saw was in March and CBS had asked for it to be dropped but that's the last that I heard I don't think any decisions been made as far as whether it'll go forward or not yeah I think it's pretty bold to you know make an entire documentary that basically pins him to the exclusion of everyone else as the one being responsible but I do remember when all this was unfolding and my mother from whom I get all of my full crime (laughs) interest was really interested in the case. And she said, you know, I don't think that the parents were involved in her death, but I do really strongly feel that they're trying to cover something up. And if I, as your mother, were to try to cover for anybody, you know, for being responsible for your death, the only person I would do that for would be your sister, because Mm. I wouldn't, you know, made me sleep really soundly at night. But... (laughs) 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 But I I can understand that, not wanting to lose the second child after you've definitely lost the first one, you know? Right, right. There's still so many holes in that theory that I definitely wouldn't center a a whole documentary around it. And I know that after that, even though I didn't watch it, I was aware of kind of some of the aftermath. And then there was an interview with him on Dr. Phil, I think. Yeah. Dr. Phil just kind of gives me heebie-jeebies anyway, but I saw bits and pieces of that interview and there were lots of people coming up with all kinds of uh, theories and diagnoses for Burke after that interview because he kind of smiled oddly through the whole thing and just seemed really awkward. Definitely Um, socially awkward, yeah. Very socially awkward. And that smile he kind of had on his face the whole time, I read as just pure anxiety Mm -hmm. and awkwardness. And other people were reading it as he was smugly celebrating getting away with murder, which is insane to me. I think he had a similar smile, nervous anxiety-induced smile that Patsy had a lot of times and was Mm. criticized for. And Burke was sheltered after this crime, and I don't blame his parents for doing that. The fact that he did go on Dr. Phil, I think, is amazing because... What a life to have led the past 20 years. You know, poor guy. Mm -hmm. I do feel sorry for him. The CBS documentary wasn't the only one that was made that named him as the probable (laughs) killer. So, I mean, I know he's he's got some several lawsuits in the works. I think A&E had done a 20-year recap of John Bonet as well. And apparently, I didn't watch that one, but apparently they came to the conclusion that an intruder had done it which is mm-hmm. what the Ramses have said all along. Investigation Discovery also did a three-part documentary series on John Bonet on the 20th anniversary. And then there was a Lifetime movie, which I didn't know about, but apparently they oh. used a young girl to do voiceover to speak as Jean Bonet. So as, I, like, posthumously speaking Jean yeah, Bonet? Like, yeah. telling the story herself? Yeah. Oh, wow. Or just interjecting commentary uh, uh-huh. <laughs> at different points, including at the very wow. end. So, yeah, that's kind of weird. I don't know. Maybe that just from an entertainment perspective, that might be worth going and watching. <laughs> well, Lifetime movies always I know. are. I exactly. <laughs> exactly. I don't go to them for high art. <laughs> But you can have your own little mystery science theater uh, episode on the couch with a Lifetime movie because they're always just so absurdly awful. Yeah. 
Another thing I thought was really fascinating about this is how everyone basically wanted to tell their own story. They would talk at first about Jean Benet and her family and the crime, but it always led to something about that actor's life, which yeah. I found interesting that, you know, I think it's human nature. We all just want to tell our own stories. So no matter what we're talking about, we relate it to our own lives and we end yes. up just telling a story about ourselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. I find that really fascinating, too, and thought that was it good that she included so much of that in the documentary. Um, Yeah, that's true. And there was a whole tapestry of people whose lives somehow touched on the Ramsey's lives, like the woman who was auditioning who wanted to talk about her past in pageants. Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, you're right. Everybody could just kind of threw in a little bit of their own story. Yeah. And there there was one actress who was she her past was filled with tragedy. I mean, she was sexually abused. And Mm -hmm. I think she had lost a child and, you know, a myriad of things that she told us about. And it's interesting how actors and actresses, when they are cast in a role, they bring that history to the role, no matter if they're playing a real person or not. Yeah. The uh, now I can't remember who he played, if he played a cop or what, but there was a guy who introduced himself as uh, having some kind of mundane job and also being a sex educator. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I yeah. thought, oh, okay, he teaches like, you know, at night school for the GED requirement for sex ed or whatever, <laughs> like thinking it was, you know, or he teaches about safe sex at the local HIV clinic. And then he pulls out all these like leather whips and stuff. And like, <laughs> I didn't quite understand. <laughs> I really the just, of that. yeah, I thought that was probably more to release a little tension and comedic effect than anything, but maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe it was just a study of wide varieties of human behavior. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. think surprising. At least I hope the filmmaker wasn't putting that in or leaving it in trying to tie that back to Jean Benet in any way. Yeah, because yeah. it, it just didn't seem to have any relevance. But I mean, if, <laughs> if comic effect is what they were, or comic relief is what they were going for, then then well done. Because yeah. we just looked at it like, what? <laughs> this took a turn I wasn't expecting. A little distracting. <laughs> so that's an odd title to choose for yourself if what you do, I mean, does he whip people all day? Is he like the male version of a dominatrix? <laughs> Get them to is loosen a up a little? I don't know. I don't know. Sex educator, that said to me something entirely different. And then yeah. all of a sudden it was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You're not showing kids how to put a condom on a banana, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm sure there's an education being had, but it's not, not what I had in mind at first. And at one point, he's like, yeah, hand me that one with like the rainbow handle or something. I'm like, what? Pan over to the trunk he's pulling these things out of. It was just like this toy box of weirdness. And why did he bring that on an audition? Or maybe it was just out in his car and he mentioned it and they're like, yeah, go get yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said, I'm a sex educator. And they said, oh, you uh, show people how to put condoms on bananas? And he said, no. <laughs> yeah. Let me go out to my trunk and show you what I mean. And he must be a mobile sex educator. <laughs> if he's got it in his car. <laughs> we come to you oh. and educate oh, you. Oh, so literally. We come to you. It's all, <laughs> it's all about convenience. <laughs> I wonder if his business has gone through the roof since that. That was like a little ad. How would you get in contact with him? (laughs) We'll have to see if he's got a website. (laughs) Next time we're in Boulder, we can get educated. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we could have him as a special guest. We could Skype him in. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, we'll have to do a video podcast for that so he can <laughs> That's show right. everything. I think there's something lost in it when you can't see exactly what we're talking about. And Yeah, oof. that's true. We could actually get the whole trunk on film. Right. <laughs> we'll just speak- show notes as like a little extra bonus. <laughs> Speaking of um, Skype, this is our debut Skype episode. Oh my gosh, yeah, it is. Yeah. I felt like we'd already done one, but that was just a practice run. Yeah, so hopefully this will sound okay, but if it sounds a little different, that would explain why. Yeah, it sounds good to me. Yeah, <laughs> so far. Everything sounds great. I've, I haven't heard an echo yet, so hooray. Good. I was going to say something about an aspect of this case that's always struck me is Jean Benet's name. I wonder if this case would have the staying power it's had if she were Ashley Ramsey mm-hmm. or Katie Ramsey. Yeah. You know, if she had had a more... Because honestly, there are even true crime cases that I find very interesting and like mm-hmm. to know more about. Their names sort of blend together for me. Unless you give me like you're right where it happened or how old they were or some other identifying detail, I can't get the names straight at all. You're exactly but John right. Bonet, that's like that doesn't even require a last name. It's like Prince yeah. or Sting. Or- I think it did kind of fuel that victim turned into celebrity kind of thing because mm-hmm. she had an exotic name and, mm-hmm. like you said, you know the whole pageant aspect of it and the fact that her parents were wealthy yeah it's not even an exotic name though it just it strikes me as really pretentious well on her parents part it's such an odd name to cobble together and what Jean Benet Benet. make it sound French or something like I mean obviously (laughs) it's effective in having her remembered and if that was the goal then well done but it just strikes me as such an odd I mean if if I knew somebody who named their child Jean Benet Mm -hmm. I'm sorry it would make me roll my eyes (laughs) yeah yeah I don't think that name ever caught on but (laughs) well no <laughs> but I mean, if she'd gone on to great fame and uh, celebrity, then it might have. But ugh, yeah. now it's just it just represents being found in a basement. Right. Not good. I know. A sad story. Definitely. Oh, I didn't realize until this film that Santa, the Santa impersonator, was an actual suspect at one point. He was looked into oh, yeah. from the party. I I guess maybe I knew that at one point and forgot, but when they had Santa on the screen, you know, that was disarming too. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and at one point there was someone who was auditioning for the role of John Ramsey who dated a woman. I think his connection to the case was that he was dating a woman who worked for the Ramseys at the time or had worked for the Ramseys. Yeah, she was like supposed to be the business successor for John Ramsey and the company. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So he himself was brought in for questioning about whether she was involved. Right. So that was, you know, more than a passing interest in the case. And he said that she had had apparently been close enough to the family that they went to the funeral Mm -hmm. and he went with her as her boyfriend and he said that at the funeral, there was a man who stood up and said something really off-putting and that he said, oh, that's the guy right there. And then there was no other mention of it. Right. Who was the guy? Did they talk to him? Did you figure out who he was? Like, no. I need a little more info here. <laughs> no. But one thing I did read in doing some research for this was apparently the file for this crime is so extensive. I guess there were, I don't remember now how many different suspects were looked at, but it was like an amazing amount Apparently, I think one person, it could have been a joke, but they said the file for this was more extensive than the Watergate (laughs) file, (laughs) but just because 20 years of stuff and they've talked to so many people and looked at so many different people, 
and they've continued to do different DNA analyses each time technology gets better, which uh-huh. I think is, is great because eventually there may be a hit on something. Yeah, so the DNA evidence is puzzling to me. You mentioned earlier that the Ramses had all been cleared by DNA evidence. Right. So that and that's because they there is DNA present on Jean Benet's body that does not belong to any of them. Is that right? right? It was identified as an unidentified male. But there was evidence of her having been sexually abused at some point. So Yes. Is it possible that she was being sexually abused by this unknown male? And also was murdered by someone in her family, that the two aren't connected. I guess it's possible. I mean, anything I imagine is possible at this point. I think the weirdest part of evidence for me that potentially ties the crime back to the family is the ransom note. Mm -hmm. So many weird things about that. The fact that it was written on a, a, with a pen and paper there in the house, handwriting analysis showed that it could possibly be Patsy's writing. They referenced the amount really similar to what John had just received in a year in bonus at work. Uh, just mm-hmm. a lot of different weird things about it. And it also, I think, opened with we represent a foreign faction or something weird that you normally wouldn't see yeah. in a ransom note. And the fact that the body was there. She wasn't actually kidnapped. And it was so long. I mean, it was, what, three pages? And nobody sits down and grabs a notepad in the house and writes a three-page ransom note with other members of the family in the house. Right. You're not just going to curl up and write a a manifesto with the child right there and the clock ticking. Yeah. Yeah, It's very strange. So I think that fuels a lot of speculation about the parents trying to cover something up. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just so weird. And I, I think it was the CBS docuseries that said the DNA evidence in her underwear could have been from the factory in China, which ew, that just is super weird. And then like yeah. I, there was an FBI profiler that I saw interviewed about that, though. And she said when the Boulder Police Department presented that as a probability or possibility that she just laughed her head off because, you know, she said there's no way. Several obvious people involved in investigating the crime thought that the Boulder police had it in their heads that it was the Ramses, so they were just trying to paint that picture. So I Right, make the pieces fit that scenario. Yeah, so at this point... Yeah, just the whole idea of factory worker DNA being in your underwear. (laughs) Always wash your underwear before you wear it. Yeah. It's making my lady bits just curl right up inside me. So Always wash every piece of clothing before you wear it. I really like to even wash like t-shirts and stuff when I get them because I don't totally. feel like they're mine until they smell like the rest of my clothes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Even if oh, it yeah. have an odd smell and it came out of a bag so I know nobody <laughs> tried it on, it just doesn't feel like it's mine until I've washed it. So Yeah. Definitely wash those clothes. <laughs> Especially the underwear. You just stumbled on the title of this episode. <laughs> wash your underwear before you wear it. Perfect. Write that that's, down. That's life advice right there. <laughs> yes. Two moms here. Listen up. We know. Um, yeah. And anyway, wouldn't the, with the DNA, can't they come, come up with a vague profile of like 
well, they know it's a male. Yeah. And they, and they come up with like an ethnic description, right? So it's not I would think a factory worker eth- in Shanghai. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if anybody's actually come out and said any further information about that. Because, yeah, I mean, just late last year, yeah, CBS was still touting that factory worker theory. So I wonder if the latest DNA tests have shown what the ethnic makeup of the DNA is. That's a really yeah. good question. Yeah, that's just, I, I, it, it does seem like a stretch, but I think you could eliminate it certainly if you could just say, oh, yeah, this is not a this is not an Asian male. or Yeah, I don't remember what documentary or Dr. Phil or something that I watched mentioned the DNA was also on the thermal thermal pants, like, you know, the thermal pajama pants. Was, whatever she was wearing, the DNA was also on that, too. It wasn't just the underwear. Ah, uh, right. But, you know, again, I mean, all of these different shows and they're saying little bits and pieces of different things and talking to different experts and stuff. I mean, we're just playing this game of telephone and every time it gets repeated, we're saying different things. I mean, I have to question what are the actual facts in the case anymore because 20 years of speculation and urban legend and rumors and stuff like that have changed the story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A lot of the details that I've read, you know, that are certain verified details have been surprising to me because either they haven't come up in the pop culture discussion about her or they have been twisted in some way. But now I'm stuck on this DNA thing now because, okay, so the same DNA that was in her underwear was on her pants. So is this DNA, are they able to say like, is this DNA just like skin cells from somebody folding her laundry? Is this... I don't know. You know. I don't know. If, it's, if you're trying to put forth the the theory that it could be a factory worker, I mean, presumably mm-hmm. they're not like, yeah, depositing fluids, <laughs> yeah, on the underwear. They're just picking it up and right. folding it. So is that skin cells sloughing off? And that because I... anybody could, you know, your her teacher would have DNA on her yeah. for handing her her jacket. Yeah. Um, well, and another thing that, if I'm recalling this correctly, the parents said told the police initially that the clothes that she was wearing when they found her in the basement were not the clothes they put her to bed in. Mm. So I guess whatever DNA would have been on those clothes would have happened after she went to bed at Mm. some point. And why were her clothes changed? It's just so many weird things. It is just a whole pile of weirdness. So the format of this documentary was so interesting to me. I'd never seen that done before. Um, mm-hmm. And it was an interesting way to do it. So you get a bunch of people together for, as a casting call to make a documentary about this Jean Benet case. Right. So you've got actors lined up to play Patsy and actors lined up to play John, little cutie patooties lined up to play Jean Benet, her brother, all this. And then instead of making, or maybe in addition to making, did they actually, was somebody actually making a documentary about this or was the whole thing just a ruse? I wondered about that too. So I did a little searching around and apparently it was a ruse. It was a fictional film that was never actually filmed. And, you know, the okay. the whole idea behind it was to tell the story as the locals had come to believe the story took place. Okay. Okay. So, so I, I mean, I, obviously that's, that was the purpose of the documentary, but I could see the actual 
film being made anyway that you right. know that they would actually cast some people and have have a little twofer yeah anyway, yeah so instead know, of right. making this thing where they are going to be playing the parts reenacting all these scenes they are just sat down and talked to about their impressions of the case and their memories of it yeah, yeah so i'd never heard of that being done before and the closest thing i could think of to it was a documentary called dreams of a life have you ever seen that oh no i haven't dreams of a life is let me read it from the imdb thing here a filmmaker sets out to discover the life of joyce vincent who died in her bedsit in north london in 2003 her body wasn't discovered for three years Ooh. And newspaper reports offered few details of her life, not even a photograph. So this woman had her um, bills and rent and everything prepaid for a while. She died in this little flat in London and she wasn't, nobody looked in on her. She didn't have any friends or family or anything who were interested in what became of her. So she ended up just lying on a couch for three years until finally the rent was due <laughs> and, um, somebody found her. So I remember seeing this headline about it because it started this whole big conversation in England about like, whoa, why aren't we checking in on our neighbors anymore? Has right. community died? What's going on? And I thought this was an old lady. I thought it was going to be somebody in her 90s or something. All her her family had died. You know, her besties can't get around well anymore, that kind of thing. But she was not an old woman at all. Hmm. And um, I think she was like maybe in her 40s. Okay. But... Um, so because she not only was not famous, but didn't have a whole, you know, a really solid circle of friends, the documentary filmmaker tried to kind of cobble together some visuals to go with this documentary about what happened and what was her life. And so they ended up hiring an actress to play her in reenactments mm -hmm. of scenes of her life. Oh, wow. Which it was a really eventful lovely life she mm -hmm. had been a really talented singer had sang backup for some famous people and so it would just became the more you learned about her the more puzzling it became that she could lie dead in her apartment for three years and nobody would even raise the alarm or check in on her wow so i mean it was yeah really kind of dark and depressing documentary but it was the first one i'd ever seen where the bulk really of the visuals were uh -huh. reenactments Huh, interesting. Um, they they did have people that they could sit down and talk to who had remembered when she was a good singer or who had dated her years before, that kind of thing. But most of the visuals came about just from the – because they didn't even have family photos to, to show you who she was. They, wow. They, you make a documentary, you have to have something to put on the screen. <laughs> yeah. But that was the first one I had ever seen like that. So this reminded me of that in a way. I mean, not that the actors in this documentary were actually – reenacting anything they were stopped just short of reenacting anything and just talking about it but right um it, it's just interesting to me that there's so many different subgenres of documentary that you can do so many different things with it mm -hmm. yeah um there was one other film that was mentioned when i started looking at this one and i did put it on our future potential viewing list but it was mm. about that news reporter the female news reporter who shot herself live on the air but it's a similar format where the documentary is about an actress who is going to play her and mm. so it's how I guess she's preparing for the role it's called Kate Plays Christine Actress mm. Kate Lynn Shile prepares to play a news reporter who shot herself on television in 1974. That's not on Netflix, but maybe it will be in the future. So maybe we'll just keep yeah. an eye out for it. Yeah. 
And what was the other one called? Dreams of Life? Dreams of a Life. Okay. I'll have to look out for that one too. I think I watched it on Netflix, but that was a couple years ago. Who knows if it's still on there? Netflix likes to take things away when you think you still have time to watch them. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I love those articles every once in a while that I see posted to social media that say all the great things that are leaving Netflix at the end of this month. So I can at least scan the list and see if it's something I want to watch. (laughs) Yeah. And then the ones coming in, I never recognize any of them just by title alone. Right. I have to Google things to like and have a visual to remember what the heck it is. Yeah. I was going to mention, too, I did read an article with Kitty Green with the Chicago Tribune earlier this year, and mm-hmm. she described it as what we're trying to do is look at or examine a community that has lived in the shadow of this media storm for the last 20 years and how they have come to terms with a crime that's basically unsolvable. So I thought that was an interesting way of describing it. Yeah. As being unsolvable, too, at this point. Yeah. I mean, because there were, have been lots of people who said just based on the way the police handled it in those first few hours, so much evidence was compromised that yeah. it doesn't it doesn't matter what comes to light now. Right. <laughs> the things to compare it to were botched at the very beginning. So it's really sad too. I mean, I, the fact that she was found by her father, he moved the body and then they moved it again before investigators even got there. But it's so sad. I think any parent would grab their child mm-hmm. if they found him in that position. Yeah, your first thought wouldn't be, well, I better preserve this evidence and tiptoe back out of here. Your instinct would be to rush to them and pick them up. I can't even imagine. Me either. Um, There's a lot of judgment of, I mean, you know, you're a mom. There's a lot of judgment of parenting in general. Every time there's a story about somebody's child left in a car Mm -hmm. or somebody's child, you know, wandering away from home or some, you know, there's so much judgment of parents about having been irresponsible or... You know, you shouldn't have done this. You should have done that. And I think, you know, it obviously it makes us it makes people feel safe to be judgy about it because it makes them feel like, well, that will never happen to me because I'm smarter than that or better prepared than that or I just know better or whatever. Right. And it's just not true. And you don't know whether to defend the Ramses in this case because it's still very much up in the air whether they had something to do with her death or covering it up at least. But it is painful to hear judgment of those moments. Yeah. Or judgment of how they should be behaving when they grieve. I don't have any idea how I would grieve if I lost a child. I can't even imagine that circumstance. In the interview with Dr. Phil, I did watch it on YouTube when I started Mm. getting ready to talk about this. Because I hadn't seen it. The Burke interview? Well, he also interviewed John Ramsey as part of that same show. And one of the points that he made was when it first happened, it was so frustrating for them because the police were focusing so much on them and not on it potentially being an intruder or anyone else. I'm sure that affected the way they came across in interviews and on television and when they were being examined by the police. Because if I was at my wits end, you know, wanting someone to help find the killer of my daughter and the police were just focusing on me and my husband. Asking you the same questions 95 times. Yeah, Yeah. it would make me crazy too. I would be ready to punch a wall. I would just sit there and probably with gritted teeth, you know, have a very strange look on my face because I'm repeating the same information over and over. You know, there was probably a lot of that going on with the Ramses. But of course, we all watch it on TV and 
soak it up and analyze it and right yeah. well and because the only clip you see is the 95th time she's been asked that question so of course she's angry and frustrated and right. you know she's gonna she's not gonna come off as a sweetie pie or a grieving mother she's going to come off as a caged animal because yeah. she's stuck in this little room being asked the same thing for the hundredth time and none of us get to see the first time she answers it i'm sure that looked much more like what we'd expect to see so Mm-hmm. If we're only shown the footage of somebody after they've been backed into a corner and harassed ad nauseum at the expense of an actual investigation into someone else, yeah, it's not really a fair representation of how they really acted after they found this out. Right. Or how they act when they aren't able to get away from everybody else and just to each other. Right. Yeah. And then there was the weird part about John Mark Carr or... Yeah. Yeah. That was a weird twist. Yeah. Very, very weird. And they all, I noticed they only had two actors respond to the call for him. (laughs) (laughs) And one was super creepy and wasn't one of them like, yeah, like, oh, that's the guy. If you ever do this, call that guy. (laughs) I agree. But that was an interesting twist because everybody thought, oh, finally, now we have an answer to it. And then it turned out he was not connected at all. That DNA did not belong to him. And he apparently just confessed to it so that he would be extradited from very serious um, mm-hmm. charges in Thailand. Was, right. was that where he was? That's where he was. Yeah. yeah. He was busted for, um, it was child porn or child rape or both. I don't know. But he had some very serious charges and realized, oh, if I confess to this John Bonet thing going back, going on back in the States, I'll be extradited back there. Yeah. Found, you know, to have nothing to do with that and then be safely back in the States. Right. Brilliant, but evil. <laughs> Just crazy. All of these things have kept her story alive, but unfortunately just haven't solved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I unsolvable, I think, is a good way to put it because I don't know that there's anything new that could come to light that would, I mean, unless the DNA is finally matched to somebody Yeah, that wasn't, you know, the guy who folded her underwear at the factory. Or, right. Or, you know, some perfectly harmless thing like that. Short of that, I see it being a big question mark forever. I don't know. Hopefully there can eventually be some closure, but it's not looking very promising. I was really hoping when Patsy passed away a few years ago that there would be some kind of deathbed confession, even some small part in it, you know? Yeah. Okay, I wrote the letter, but, you know, I didn't know she was in trouble until after she was dead or something. She just died and didn't give up any kind of answer at all. Maybe John will. He said that he wasn't giving any more interviews. He's remarried and trying to move on. And I guess for a while, he didn't marry her, but I thought it was interesting for a while he dated the mother. Natalie Holloway's yeah, mother. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. I mean, one of the early episodes of um, My Favorite Murder, they said that they were married, and then I Googled it, and I was like, no, they didn't get married. They just dated briefly. But yeah. I think that might have been one of their first correction corners. Now it's become a time-honored tradition. It's- if we had more fans, we'd probably have more corrections. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. When there's only six people listening. You, I know. You know. They let a lot of things slide. <laughs> <laughs> then maybe they're not as into the crimes as we are or the, the documentaries as we are. I don't right, know. We could say anything. They'd have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we do have two reviews on iTunes. So, what? yeah. Everybody out there, stop what you're doing and just go out to iTunes, search for documentaries, click on the podcasts tab, and then I think one of the 
items there, one of the options somewhere in that vicinity is to leave a review or write a review, maybe. You should do that. And I think you don't even have to write words. You can just click the stars if you don't want to actually write a review. You can just rate. But if you could write a review, that would be even better. (laughs) I love it. I just pulled it up and saw our two reviews. I didn't know we had them. So thank you, DocLover73 and C.W. Murphy. You are original fans, VIPs. (laughs) Well, somebody's got to be first, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now we got ourselves a movement. Two people. (laughs) The ice is broken. All right. I found this a fascinating documentary, not because of the John Bidet facts of the case, but because of the study of human behavior and the community, the idea of the community and the stories in the community. I found that really interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad we watched it. Yeah, I just was intrigued by the, you know, like you said, there's a whole heap of Jean Benet documentaries out there. And I missed the boat on all the ones that happened a few months ago. But I was really intrigued by the premise of this one and just kind of eager to see how it worked out. And it was interesting. It was, yeah. I thought it was really well done. And it helped that all of those people doing the auditioning were from the Boulder area. I think that lent it a lot more interesting kind of insider info than we would have gotten with just your average people. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Who only knew it from the news. Right. All right. Well, I think that's all I had on the documentary. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah. What have you got for uh <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I still want to call it happy ending. Which this is a side note here. This you can leave this in or take it out. But there is a massage place in a strip mall near here. Ah. That just says massage over the top of it. And I've just Uh noticed it kind of when I'm coming and going, it just says massage over the top. And I thought that's, you know, surely they've got a more specific name than that. And the next time I was in that area, I ordered a pizza and then walked past the massage place to go kill some time at the grocery (laughs) store or something before picking up pizza. So when I walked past the massage place, even on the door itself, it doesn't say anything but massage. No, like owner name no bullet list of like the services or anything Hmm. and the whole the windows are completely papered over with like waterfall scenes and Mm -hmm. beach scenes and you know these relaxing you know but you can't see into the place Mm -hmm. and so i was like is this like a legit massage place because it's in like a family neighborhood it's not a sketchy side of town at all it's between a grocery store and a pizza joint so Hmm. i was like is that this looks sketchy to me for some reason. So I came home, I Googled massage uh-huh. and the name of the strip mall. And I found like this kind of brief description of what they have. And one of the things is a table shower. What? And I was like, what is a table shower? And I Googled that. And it's some kind of contraption where you lay down on the massage table and they have some kind of shower that like rolls over you to clean you off so that you're not, you know, covered slick oil when you're done. Oh. But then I also found a site that said that <laughs> is a code word for uh, like a happy ending place. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So now I still don't know. And hmm. I am just intrigued and curious beyond measure to find out what is going on in that massage parlor. Interesting. Huh. You'll have to keep an eye on that place. It's not just a code word because I was like, wow, that's really neat. What a great idea. But I don't want to go into a place <laughs> and get more than I bargained for. You know? Oh, no. So anyway, it made me think of this podcast because I can't stop saying happy ending about to refer to the part at the end <laughs> where we say where we end on a high note. Well, all endings should be happy, right? I mean, that's <laughs> 
find your happy, right? Well, they get real happy down at the strip mall, apparently. So, yeah, you have to. We can do an investigative podcast on massage place, legit or happy ending. There you go. We'll have to stake it out and send in somebody (laughs) to do do some undercover work. Yeah, let's fill out job applications, see what the training entails. (laughs) Picked up some skills over the years. I might be able to, you know, help you out. Uh, Oh man. So anyway, our this portion of the show is not called happy ending. It's called ending on a high note, right? Yes. Okay. I'm one of these days I will learn to say it properly. I don't personally care what we call it we can call it a happy ending if you want no because i it just gives me the giggles too bad (laughs) anyway the high note that i wanted to share today is meditation which is not something i ever thought i would have an interest in but there was a book that came out a couple of years ago called 10 percent happier have you heard of this book no. Um, it's called, the full title is 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head. It's written by Dan Harris, who was um, a correspondent for ABC News. Okay. And he kind of started marketing this book by telling the story of how he had a panic attack on live on the air. Oh. One morning, he usually did the night news. He usually was a correspondent mm-hmm. who filed some stories with the night news broadcast, but he was filling in on Good Morning America, maybe, or one of those. Mm-hmm. I, I don't watch mm-hmm. a lot of TV news, so I don't remember which show goes with which channel. But anyway, it was a morning news show, and he was the guy that was going to be reading the headlines when mm-hmm. the chatty hosts kicked it over to him to say, here's what's happening in the world. And he started to read a headline, and then just his mind panicked. I thought, you know, having a panic attack on live on the air would be like he would be completely freaking out or losing right. his breath or doubling over in his chair. But it really was just like... His eyes got kind of big and his words trailed off and he didn't have anything else to say. And he just very calmly, casually said, now back to you guys. Yeah. After only getting halfway through one headline. So he handled it beautifully. But it, I he, have actually seen that clip. Yeah. Have you seen it? It's I have. really amazing to watch because it's not what you would, with the sound off, you wouldn't suspect this guy was having a panic attack. Right. But with the sound on, you realize that's he only read like half a headline why is he already sending it back to them Mm -hmm. and apparently as soon as the camera was off of him he was just like you know in turmoil but anyway so he is a natural skeptic he's kind of a not really a guy you would think of as being into meditation but after that experience when he started to see a therapist and talk about you know anxiety and how on a lower level a non-panic level it was just kind of permeating every part of his life he started to learn about meditation and the the research behind, you know, how it can help you stay calmer and Mm -hmm. be more focused. And he started to research how it's being used. Marines are using it. I mean, you definitely don't think of Marines as sitting around, you know, thinking about waterfalls or whatever. Yeah. And how it's being used in schools to sort of help students regulate their moods and behavior. Mm -hmm. And just all this overwhelming evidence of how good it is for you. So he started to do it. He wrote this book called 10% Happier, which he says is he felt like it was an honest representation of how what it's done for him. Like 10% mm-hmm. happier, that's not like a huge life-changing moment, but it has significantly improved his life. Mm-hmm. And so the whole book is written with all this research about how meditation can help people do these various things in life and how he, as a natural skeptic and the least likely to meditate, <laughs> how he understands how it's hard for people to sort of grasp and how people would hesitate to get into it, but how it's done so much for him. Mm-hmm. So because it was written by a skeptic and because it was written by somebody who's not, you know, wearing a caftan and, <laughs> you know, lighting incense, 
it felt much more accessible and approachable. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I read it and enjoyed it and kind of put it in the back of my mind. Yeah, I should probably meditate someday and just mm-hmm. never did. Mm-hmm. He has an app out now and I don't know how long that's been happening, but it just recently came to my attention. And in the app, he talks to a different expert on meditation for a few minutes about how they feel about it, how they got into it and that kind of thing. And then that expert guides you through a short meditation Okay. And it's, you know, not, I've always thought, well, I'm not going to be able to empty my mind out. And Mm -hmm. that's not what it is at all. Like your mind, your thoughts will keep coming and going, but you're just supposed to like make a note of it and Mm -hmm. come back Mm -hmm. to your breath or come back to whatever it is you're focusing on. And I do feel better. I do feel better from meditating. I feel like I'm able to focus better and um, not be so fretful during the day. And so I'd recommend it. If you have heard about meditation and you feel like it would probably be a good idea, but you're not sure how to approach it. That book and that app will help bridge the gap for you, I think. I'm enjoying it. Good. Is the app also called 10% Happier? Or It is. Okay. Yep. I'll have to look for that. I've read quite a bit about meditation over the past couple of years. It, it's been in the news quite a bit as far as positive effects of it. I keep saying I've got to try it. I've installed a couple of apps on my phone that were free. I don't think either of them was that app, but I installed one for my daughter on her iPad because she mm. had asked about meditation at one point. But last time I asked her if she'd ever tried it out, she said no. But maybe it's oh. something, maybe she and I could motivate each other to do it and I could get more into it. Just on reading, it sounds like it would have a positive effect on my life too. And I've tried to be more mindful and, you know, pay more attention to my own feelings and, you know, when I need to take a break or step back or, you know, do something instead of just pushing forward. But, but yeah, I'll I'll definitely have to check his app out. Yeah. I have put meditation apps on my phone before and kind of given them a whirl and they always without fail put me to sleep. (laughs) I don't, I don't know why, which is probably great. One of the guys that Dan Harris interviews says, if you start to meditate and you fall asleep, that's fine. You probably needed sleep more than you needed meditation Mm -hmm. at that point. But the people that he talks to in this app that guide you through meditations, I don't know why I'm able to stay awake and alert better with those, but I am. Good. And when I have enjoyed yoga too, I think part of the reason that I feel good, so good after yoga is not just the stretching and the balancing and all of that stuff, but the last few minutes where you just kind of go through this guided meditation, I think it has made me, I think it does make me feel calmer and more centered and grounded. So yeah. Anyway give that a go. Meditation in general, but especially that book. If you kind of give side eye to meditation as I did, then that book is a good place to kind of jump into it. Okay, good. I have to look for that. Mine is, we, as you know, have Pickles the dog, but we also have two other dogs. One is a hound we rescued last Christmas from the county Mm -hmm. pound. And the other is an older mixed breed who's, we think she might be husky, golden retriever type mix, but she's Mm. 13. And the two newer dogs, Pickles is, he actually just turned one year old on May 6th. (laughs) So he's young and the hound is young and the hound is super long legs. And so ever since we've had both of those dogs, we walk them on a leash outside so every time they had to go out we would walk them on a leash so we started exploring fencing options oh yeah because that was getting old especially when it's raining or if it's snowy and cold 
So we did a little research online and found a website called PetPlaygrounds.com, and they sell kits of what are supposed to be jump-proof and dig-proof fences, and chew-proof as well, because we were worried Mm. about all three of those things with these two younger dogs. So Um. we ordered one for just a small area in our backyard, and you can buy the optional installation, the professional installation, but it was like $1,000, and I'm like, well, let's at least try it ourselves. Mm. So we got all the stuff delivered, and we unpacked it, and there were no instructions to start <laughs> start installing the fence. So I did call their customer service number, and the owner actually called me back and said, we used to do instructions, but it was just a disaster similar to like IKEA instructions, <laughs> and it caused uh-huh. more, more confusion than it helped solve problems. So he said, just go out on our website and watch the installation video, you know, and you might have to start and stop and restart it several times as you go along. But he said that seems to work for most people. So my husband and I set aside the whole weekend to start with. And once we got going, it really wasn't that bad. I Mm -hmm. think we were making it out to be harder than it actually was (laughs) in our heads. But once we got started and had a little rhythm going, it went pretty quickly. And we're really happy with how it turned out. Um, It's a very straightforward system where, I mean, it's just like wire, heavy gauge wire mesh and poles and you you don't even have to dig for the poles, which is one reason we liked it. We can move this fence easily. We can take it down easily if we want because you have these aluminum no-dig sleeves that you drive into the ground first, and then you just stick mm-hmm. the poles in those. So if you want oh. to move it or something like that, you don't have to dig up concrete. You just pull those poles out and then pull the no-dig sleeves out. So the hardest part was getting the no-dig sleeves into the ground without bending them. (laughs) Oh, yeah. uh, The ground was really hard, and what we found worked best was we had some old metal, I guess, iron pipe that we had just had replaced for a well. And we were able to hammer that in the ground first to make like a pilot hole. And then we could Uh hammer the no-dig sleeves down into the ground. And once we had those done, the easy part was just attaching the mesh part. And what we really love about it is you really don't notice there's a fence there. It blends in with the environment because it's like a black mesh. And it's not like real fine mesh. You know, it's like larger square mesh. And so unless you're like standing close to it you don't really notice it's there which is nice it blends it's in not like well. a big obvious chain link or like one of those exactly huge... yeah yeah and like the wooden fence you know would be i think a lot more upkeep as well you know because mm-hmm. you'd have to stain it or, or at yeah. least wash it but yeah we were really happy with how it turned out and so if you're in the market for a dog fence and don't want to put up like a real permanent fence and need something that's, you know, tall so it's not jumpable and strong and chew-proof and dig-proof. It's got an L at the ground so they can't dig under. I highly recommend (laughs) PetPlaygrounds.com. PetPlaygrounds. That's really smart that they do the instructions in a video because that's the only way to really, you know, there's even yeah. when we have written instructions for something, sometimes I have to see if somebody's done it on YouTube. Right. Um, Me too. There's uh, a, a tent that we had for my son when he was a baby, you know, one of those kind of bug proof little, t- like uh-huh. you would take to the beach or something oh, yeah, to give yeah. them some shelter and keep the bugs away. 
and we used the heck out of it when he was really tiny. And then it's one of those things that I was really happy to pass on to another, you know, little one coming up. But it's one of those things that like when you take it out of the bag, it's almost spring loaded. It just sort of (laughs) flies into shape. And so I knew that setting it up would be easy, but I thought she's going to really, it took me forever to figure out how to fold it back down. So I wasn't breaking it and it would still fit into that bag. And, but we had long ago lost the instructions and I thought, I don't even know how to begin to describe to her in writing yeah. how to do this. So I looked on YouTube, just Googled the name of the tent and folding instructions. And mm-hmm. there were like two or three people. It wasn't even the company. It was just two or three people who knew they were going to have to tell their babysitter how to do this or their <laughs> wife how to do this or whatever. Yeah. And had of their out of the goodness of their hearts <laughs> done these tutorials. So I just said, go to YouTube and type this in. You'll see how to do it. So hopefully yeah. that thing's still alive and kicking because if you don't do it just right, you know, it <laughs> breaks or falls apart. Right. Um, and you can get, we call it YouTube certification. Anything mm-hmm. you need to learn to do, like cut your kid's hair or, you know, replace something in your toilet or, you Definitely. know. Definitely. Yeah, totally. I even mentioned to my husband while we were putting that fence up that we should have done our own YouTube video of putting that pet playgrounds fence up because somebody might want a different perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you could do it. You know, you put some cool music to it too, and like put little tags where like the different parts of it start. You know, that's so right. Nobody has to go back and watch the whole thing over again. Like, yeah, this is where we start putting in the sleeves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You should do that. Oh my gosh. Well, it's too late now. <laughs> Although we do have some leftover materials and we have, well, I've joked about it. I don't think my husband thinks it's very funny, but I have joked about putting up a goat pen beside the house using that material, but he doesn't think that's very funny. Oh man. Yeah. I guess we have enough animals. So how long did it take to put the whole uh, fence together and everything? We took our time, and so we just worked on the weekends, basically, too. But we got it put up over two weekends. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Family project. Yeah. Yeah. And we did have other things sprinkled in there, too, family commitments and different things. So we weren't working on it the whole, you know, two Saturdays and two Sundays. But (laughs) overall, yeah, yeah, we're really happy with it. I'll have to take a picture and and show you. Yeah. Yeah. See how the dogs are enjoying it. Do they all get in there at once? Or yeah, we just—it's so nice because we just let them out the back door now, and nice. They just come back to the back door when they're ready to come in. It's so funny to me because they're such different dogs. They are just three completely <laughs> different animals, and so it's so strange to think of them interacting for long at all. I know. Well, it's been so funny. They're barking right now. I've got them sequestered in the different part of the house. I don't know if you can hear them barking. The the yeah. mail the mail truck just came. So Oh boy. <laughs> They're all barking. Yeah, but, that's always mayhem here too. Just yeah. with the one dog. Your mind. <laughs> well, we always joke about the oldest dog, the thirteen year old, and she's medium to large dog and she acts like such a little old lady. You know, I mean, if she was a woman, she would be a little gray-haired old lady with a purse on her forearm, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just walking down the road, you know, and yes. um, <laughs> a little cardigan. <laughs> yes, exactly. Always chilly. And Some reading glasses on a yeah, string. I, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that would be her. <laughs> and what's funny is we always refer to her as being more of a roommate than a dog because she's so obedient and she's always just there with us. And when we're not in the room, though, she'll start playing with the puppy. 
mm-hmm. and she will play really hard. And <laughs> so I I haven't been given her pain medication like I was before she started playing. I think it's it's actually helped her feel better. So yeah, it's just funny. Like when she knows we're not watching, she becomes a little puppy again and plays. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. So who who would Pickles be if Pickles were a person? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think at this point he would be a gangly teenage boy. Yeah. <laughs> With yeah. long legs and awkward, but yeah. you know, sweet though. He still has a sweet side. Yeah. But gets a lot of notes home from the teacher about, you know, not being able to <laughs> yeah. focus. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, last night it was funny because we actually had a date night last night. We had a gift card for a movie theater so we went to see guardians of the galaxy and i hadn't seen the first one but you don't really need to it was it was a good movie i enjoyed it and yeah, it was I think just our husbands saw the first one together did they together probably. didn't they i think that's Maybe. why you and i haven't seen it <laughs> <laughs> you're probably you right yeah but yeah it was a good movie and so my daughter spent the night with my mother-in-law and uh-huh. it's the first time she spent the night with her grandma since Pickles started sleeping in her bed. So we were all curious about how the sleeping arrangements would work out last night. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my daughter was a little worried about whether he would be able to sleep without her or not. So I said we would take good care of him. And I should have really thought it through a little more because I told my husband to go ahead and take the other two dogs upstairs and let them go to sleep. And then I'll bring Pickles up later. And we had his crate that he doesn't usually sleep in. We had it in the room, though, in case he wanted to get in and sleep if he thought he might feel more comfortable there. So I go upstairs. Everyone in the room, the two dogs and my husband are asleep. I'm holding Pickles. I've tried at first putting him in his crate thinking Mm. you know he would just go right back to sleep because he'd been sleeping with me you know beside me on the sofa before we went up so I put him in closed the door he immediately started whining and pawing at the the crate door so I said okay fine I'll get you out and try letting you sleep in the bed and of course our hand dog sleeps in the bed with us but the older dog sleeps in the floor. And they were already asleep, but I'm sure they had woken up at this point. <laughs> so as soon as I got Pickles out of the crate, Spot jumped out of bed, and I think he thought it was playtime and started jumping around. And <laughs> so I'm like, nope, nope, lay down. And tried to put Pickles in the bed, tried to get him to calm down. But apparently he got the cue that it was time to play too. Oh, so, boy. So my husband at this point woke up and... So I just told him, I'm going to go sleep in her daughter's bed with pickles. I think that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all that's going to happen at this point. <laughs> so I did that, and pickles took forever to calm down because I guess he was all keyed up at that point, plus probably wondered where my daughter was. <laughs> and so, so I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. You know, he was up and down a lot overnight. Yeah. And, of course, woke up this morning and needed to go out pretty early so (laughs) we learned a lesson I guess if we ever do this again we're just gonna maybe take all three of them up at the same time and if they want to play for a few minutes (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think that's an option (laughs) they've got a cat an older cat so I'm not I don't think Pickles has ever seen a cat and I'm not sure he would. Oh my gosh, that would blow his mind. It would. 
yeah. Nobody would be sleeping that night. Yeah, I think he would be very interested in a cat. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I had a few different happy things there, didn't I? (laughs) That's okay. The more the merrier. Happy things are good. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Thank you all for joining us. And like we said earlier, be sure to go out and rate and review us, or at least just rate us if you don't want to write a review. But... Feel free to contact us through email at documentaries at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Talkumentaries. Yeah, and we've got, um, do we want to say what some of the upcoming episodes are going to be or do we yeah. keep that under wraps until? We're going to be in future episodes. One of the things we've got queued up to watch is Growing Up Trans, the frontline documentary about children, transgender children. And another one is Man on Wire, a documentary about the French daredevil who walked on a tightrope between the twin towers of the, um, new at the time, newly constructed World Trade Center. Yeah. So um, put those in your queue, too, and watch along with us. All right. So I guess we'll, hear, we'll uh, talk to you guys next time. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you